I'm Esther Amar. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. We go behind those headlines, bring you what is often unheard, a fresh perspective. I'm live in 3FM studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR in Washington, D.C. We are international, on air nationally across the United States and in Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 in Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm joined every week by badass and brilliant women of color. We discuss and dissect stories on politics, policy, social justice, culture, race, love, gender, all through the lens of the media. Today, our main event conversation, Policy Matters, Bill Clinton, Super Predatory Politician. Hot Topic 1, Jesus Talk, Preaching While Policing. Hot Topic 2, Malawi Magic, New Chief Ends Child Marriages. All of that, coming up. contributors this week are Dr. Christina Greer and Dr. Bhakti Shringapore. Dr. Christina Greer is Associate Professor of Political Science at Fordham University and author of the critically acclaimed Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration and the Pursuit of the American Dream. Bhakti Shringapore is Editor-in-Chief of Warscapes Magazine and Assistant Professor of Literature at the University of Connecticut. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Thanks, Esther. Thank you. Let's start with our main event, Bill Clinton, super predatory policymaker and Black Lives Matter. Former President Bill Clinton and Black Lives Matter activists had a heated exchange at a Philadelphia rally on April 7th, where Bill Clinton was speaking in support of Hillary Clinton seeking the presidential nomination. The Black Lives Matter movement are calling out the Clintons for their support of the 1994 crime bill, which led to a massive expansion of incarceration across the United States. One demand is for the Clintons to acknowledge the damage of the bill to communities of color and to acknowledge the damage of Hillary Clinton's 1996 comment that black youth were, quote, super predators, unquote. That demand prompted this reaction. I don't know how you would characterize the gang leaders who got 13-year-old kids hopped up on crack and sent them out onto the street to murder other African-American children. Maybe you thought they were good citizens. She didn't. She didn't. You are defending the people who kill the lives you say matter. Tell the truth. You are defending the people who caused young people to go out and take guns. There was a 13-year-old girl in Washington, D.C. who was planning her own photos. A back and forth between the Black Lives Matter organizers and Clinton provoked him to actually double down on the bill and what he claimed it achieved in the lives of communities of color. I talked to a lot of African-American groups. They thought Black Lives Matter. They said, take this bill because our kids are being shot in the street by gangs. We have 13-year-old kids planning their own funerals. She doesn't want to hear any of that. You know what else she doesn't want to hear? Because of that bill, we had a 25-year low in crime, a 33 low in the murder rate, year low murder rate. And listen to this. Because of that and the background check law, we had a 46-year low in the deaths of people by gun violence. And who you think those lives were that matter? 
these lives were saved that matter. Here's Melina Abdullah, a Black Lives Matter organizer in Los Angeles and chair of Pan-African Studies at California State University, responding to Bill Clinton's words on Democracy Now! What we're seeing with President Clinton, um, former President Clinton, and what we're seeing in Los Angeles are actually linked. So this idea of neoliberal politics um, kind of blaming the folks who it assails for their own oppression. And so when we think about the initial comments by President Clinton around um, black youth and those who got them quote unquote hopped up on crack, I think what he's really neglecting is the policies that bring crack cocaine into um, inner cities in the first place, the policies that create unemployment and underemployment in the first place, and then the policies that he initiates that then go ahead and um, further oppress and repress communities. And so that um, is one of the things that we're so um, upset about, that he is dehumanizing the communities that are actually the victims and um, bear the brunt of neoliberal policies that keep us oppressed. Bill Clinton's words provoked a storm across social media, mainstream media, with a range of voices from academics to activists to artists to educators, all highlighting the harm the bill caused in communities of color. The next day, it was reported that Bill Clinton regretted his words, that he would apologize. Here is what he actually said. You're living in a country where young African Americans think their number one threat now is from police officers. When I signed that crime bill, they knew what their number one threat was. It was from gangs making money out of cocaine, taking teenage kids, hopping them up, giving them guns, and telling them to go kill other teenagers. Melina Abdullah connected his policy to the people it impacted by sharing how she and her community personally felt the brunt of the 1994 crime bill and how the legacy of that policy lingers to this very day. So as one who was coming of age myself in the 90s, as one who lived in East Oakland, um, a space where these kinds of conditions that he describes were really part of my everyday experience, one of the things that he is very good at and neoliberal politicians are very good at is kind of distracting us from the real issues, distracting us from how systems create these conditions. So they act as if um, the young folks who wind up you know, committing crimes, committed crimes because they simply were out of control, committed crimes as if they weren't human beings. So this term super predator, again, dehumanizes our children, dehumanizes our people. And so it acts as if we're um, behaving um, in ways that are not simply um, as a result of the conditions that we experience. And so we need to turn the tables and look back at policymakers, look back at systems that create oppressions in the first place, that create hollowed out communities where there are no resources, where there are no livable wage jobs, where there are no after school programs. Look at the policies of the Clinton administration rolling back the kinds of resources that I um, would have benefited from and many of my peers would have benefited from um, in kind of moving forward. And so rather than looking at so-called um, 13-year-old uh, super predators, which, you know, we know is a term that's used 
for black youth, this is dog whistle politics, right? Um, we need to look at policies that don't provide the resources that we need that began in the 90s but continue to today. So the crime bill is another example of it, right? So we're blaming people for being in prison. We're blaming people for being poor. We're blaming people for not having access to resources when we're not looking at the policymakers themselves who create the conditions that um, uh, hold back resources from communities. Democratic contender Bernie Sanders addressed Bill Clinton's comments at a rally in New York's Harlem, where he said the American people deserved an apology for Clinton's defense of the indefensible. Lena dismissed that need and argued what was required from the Democrats was institutional action, not individual apologies. It is absolutely indefensible. That said, we're not looking for an apology from Bill Clinton or Hillary Clinton, who's now seeking our vote, right? We're not looking for apologies from them. What we want is substance. So we want substantive responses. We want responses that are actually empowering to communities. We want it recognized that our children are not super predators. We want it recognized that there is something that can be done to then um, kind of shift what it is we're doing with our resources and with our policies to be empowering to communities and be in conversation with communities. I think what's most disturbing is that when we talk about super predators, when we talk about 13-year-old children as not being children, it also signals a kind of policy-making agenda that seeks to advance the interests of big business, of white supremacist, patriarchal, heteronormative capitalism, the existing hegemony as the, the primary agenda that needs to be addressed without engaging the communities that are most in need of um, progressive and really kind of forward-thinking transformational policy work. The call-out was partially due to Hillary Clinton's words back in 1996. Here is what she actually said. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heal. The 1994 crime bill and its expansion of incarceration devastated and decimated communities of color. They were incarcerated for long sentences for nonviolent crimes. Their voting rights, employment possibilities, family life were all impacted. Families, communities, futures were broken. Hillary Clinton is seeking the Democratic nomination for president. Black Lives Matter has refused to endorse any individual candidate. It continues to lobby for policy that transforms black people's lives. Their call, policy and practice matter, not politicians' rhetoric and non-apologies. Let's talk policy power, politicians and people. Christina Greer, let me start with you. I wasn't surprised by President Clinton's remarks. I think if we've been listening closely to Bill Clinton, not just these past seven years, but actually the, more like the past 25 years, um, he's essentially been saying this. There's some somehow, I think, with the the fog of the Reagan years and the first term of Bush H.W., um, he seemed like a breath of fresh air, but he was just savvy in essentially replicating neoliberal policies um, and creating structures and institutional structures that were really detrimental to black folks at the time and definitely, you know, two decades later. So the fact that he actually even refuses to apologize 
isn't really surprising to me, just because he hasn't actually apologized for any of um, the laws and, and institutional structures that he put in place while he was president or supported after he left office. So I would I would want him to stop talking, but I think the more he talks, um, the more he just makes it plain how he really feels. I think, you know, the wake-up call for many black Americans especially, but people who call themselves their allies, you know, came in 2008 uh, when Hillary Clinton was running against Barack Obama, and he made those comments after Obama won South Carolina and essentially dismissed Obama's win to essentially say, well, I mean, anyone can win South Carolina. I mean, Jesse Jackson won South Carolina. And that was the first time that many black people, I think, woke up to really hear him um, and really look at him as someone from Arkansas who has essentially used rhetoric um, that has in some ways um, lulled many people to sleep when his actual policies are, are really the antithesis of progressive politics. I think he also presents a really interesting question in the 21st century as we talk about feminism and women and women in the electorate and running for office where, you know, should we be shackled to the thoughts and words of our partners? Um, And I think Hillary Clinton really has yet to decide what that's going to be. You know, on some days she wants to essentially say that they were a team and everything they they did was because of the two of them. And then on other days she wants to distance herself. So I think, you know, yet again, that's, part of the conflict in this campaign. I think that's why many people are really disillusioned with her as a candidate and looking elsewhere, even if it comes in the form of the 74-year-old, you know, senator from Vermont who no one really heard of last year. Hmm, Bhakti Shringapur. Yeah, I agree, especially with the oh, with the second part of what you just said about whether um, Hillary Clinton wants to sort of uh, be ex- associated with this. But, I, I mean, the truth is that, you know, this... This word, you know, that's haunting her campaign now, this word that they refuse to take back, the word super predator that Bill Clinton so vociferously, so loudly um, defended. I mean, I I think part of the issue is this is the sort of game of rhetoric um, that they are playing. And I agree with Melina Abdullah when she says uh, that you need institutional action and not apology. But I do think in this case, some sort of apology, um, you know, is, is really needed. I mean, I, I, you know, he, he stopped short of apologizing. He said he regretted getting heated up. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think, I think, not acknowledging the extraordinary racism of the word super predator, the dehumanization of the people that he's referring to, uh, the kind of extremely white supremacist uh, place that this this term and this this way of speaking comes from, um, you know, it's it's astounding and it's really upsetting and it's sad. Um, and I think until they figure out a way to kind of um, take back this language. Uh, I don't think they can move forward. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's one thing to have this analysis, which we also read, um, which was that he wasn't actually addressing uh, the Black Lives Matter movement. What he was addressing was the people that were not present, uh, that he was trying to um, not really aim for the black vote, uh, but he was trying to get the people who feel um, who feel uh, outside of this entire discourse. And, I, you know, I, I feel yes and no about that. I'm not entirely sure. I think, I think he's very keen on defending a crime bill that he set in motion. I think he really, truly 
um, believes that this is something uh, that has changed the course uh, of crime, of thinking, and black communities in general. I really do think he sees himself as some sort of an insider into this uh, into this whole policy, into the way he shaped, um, you know, all of this uh, within w- within the U.S. So, you know, I disagree that he wasn't addressing the Black Lives uh, Matter protesters. I think he actually was. I think he got carried away, uh, even though I know he's a seasoned politician and, you know, he's not uh, he, he's very deliberate. Um, but I think this crime bill has come to become this real um, sort of a crazy place for both Bill and Hillary. And neither of them seem to retract. Neither of them want to think through it. Uh, it's, it's really it's, it's actually sort of disgusting, actually. I think, you know, what's also really interesting is I I totally agree. I think, you know, in many ways he's famous for his dog whistles, and so this was uh, signaling to people who weren't in the room who actually, you know, there are many Democrats who are not liberal and are not progressive, and they represent um, the Clintons, which are moderate Democrats that, you know, do not mind somewhat Republican slash draconian policies. And so in many ways he's speaking to them to essentially say, you know, we're still with you. We're not going to kowtow to this particular uh, demographic or a faction within the party. But I also think that, you know, Bill Clinton is really concerned with his own legacy. And so this mm-hmm. refusal to apologize and to really double down, I mean, you know, I always tell people, stop doubling down on your racism. Apologize, think about it, and so we can move on. He refuses to do any of those. And I really do think that, you know, I've, I've said this several times before, when you think about Democrats who were two-term Democrats in the 20th century, you know, who really did things, um, or who actually even made it to two terms, you know, it's FDR, it's LBJ, and it's Bill Clinton. And FDR gave us the New Deal. Uh, LBJ gave us the Great Society. We can skip over Bill Clinton for a second and go to Barack Obama, who's another two-term Democrat. He gave us Obamacare and rescued us from, you know, falling off a financial global Mm -hmm. cliff. And when we think back to what did Bill Clinton give us as a Democrat, as long-standing substantive policy, none of those policies are progressive. None of them expanded the social welfare state. None of them helped mm-hmm. poor people. None of them helped people of color. None of them actually contributed anything. He actually was on some neoliberal, you know, conservative, Republican uh, messaging where it's like he took away the welfare state. You know, he, he signed mm-hmm. NAFTA and CAFTA. You know, he engaged in, you know, ignoring genocides in Rwanda and across the globe. I mean, so when we think about his legacy, and to say nothing about impeachment and the drama that is all of his, you know, inappropriate extramarital activities. <laughs> so, you know, and, and that, that the reason why I add that in there is, is not just to be shade, but to really point that while we were dealing with that and those girls in many ways, not just the women, but the girls that he was interacting with, we were ignoring Mm -hmm. the fact that, you know, we have the USS Cole or the first World Trade bombing, you know, Mm -hmm. and some real global issues that we were too distracted to really think about. So I think some of this is really about protecting his legacy because he could have in a great economy that he inherited, he could have been a great president and he really doesn't have much to show for it. 
Yeah, and let me just very quickly add, you know, Michelle Alexander, who's been just the champion in these days. You know, everything she says is is incredible, um, and you know, she she you know she's written about how both the Clintons now express regret over the crime uh, crime bill, and one of the things that Hillary wants to undo is the is is the issue of racial profiling that it put into place. I just don't know how you can do that if you're continuing to champion this racist language. You know, you I mean, you have to acknowledge that this is precisely the kind of steam and fuel that racial profiling needs to to call someone, to call young kids super predators. So, you know, this is a huge issue, first and foremost, which, once again, to emphasize that an apology is needed. And the second thing, when uh, Bill Clinton wants to defend his uh, global international policies and Hillary's and is talking about how black lives matter in Africa, uh, I, I, I really don't know what he's trying to say. Is he going to reverse on the fact that he didn't do what was required to do when a genocide was taking place in Rwanda? I mean, where where is he going with this? I don't think he knows. <laughs> I think he's grasping. <laughs> I mean, really, like I think he's grasping at straws. I think he realizes that in many ways, you know, part of Hillary Clinton's first loss definitely was her fault, but part of it was his. Um, he he mm-hmm. knows that he basically, you know, told her that Obama wasn't a threat. He knows that, you know, she in many ways is still being punished for his policies. He's the one who has the pens that signs. Um, signs the bills into law. And so I think, you know, and he's the one who said some real racist things and and turned the tides of black Americans against the Clinton family post South Carolina. So mm-hmm. I in some ways I feel like he owes this to her, you know, and and I think when he tries to help, they reek of the 90s. That's the problem right. with the Clintons. They don't understand that this is the 21st century. So sort of saying, you know, half apologies or just what you're going to do Black people, we've been savvy, but we're really awake right now. And so we see the possibilities. We have seen the possibilities. And it's like, you know, what, who has time for what you're going to do when you've had so many years to do it? Mm-hmm. What's really powerful for me is these um, specific multiple dilemmas. So the first that comes up is this unique position of Hillary Clinton running to be um, – the second woman president, president, let's never forget Shirley Chisholm, um, and the unique dilemma of having been married to a man who was president and essentially being punished for the choices and the legislation that he passed while she was first lady. And that there is a way in which she is punished that is unique to being a woman running for um, um, office and being held responsible for your husband's behavior in very specific ways, in the same ways that women are blamed when husbands have affairs. And it's a weird analogy, but it is the idea of being held responsible for something you did not do. Now, that is separate to her absolute clear 1996 comment about these kids are predators and they need to be brought to heel. Her words, quote, and we play them intentionally, because what she does is she animalizes 13-year-old children. And specifically, they're talking about 13-year-old black boys. And that animalization, which is barbaric and inhuman, and helps those words become weapons that help the policy that criminalizes these children. And we see that expansion, not just in the actual incarceration, but in the treatment of those children by society at large. So there's the ripple effect of when words become weapons that translate into policy, that translate into practice. We see that. That's the first part. The second part is his kind of presidential, toxic masculinity. 
where he's, his ego is enabling him to simply refuse to shut the hell up. It is not your campaign. Sit your old behind down and do the thing that partners of president-seeking candidates are required to do, and that is actually help your partner get the crown, so to speak. And I take your point, Christina, that he's thinking about um, defending his legacy. But, you know, you want to say to Bill Clinton, you're not running for president. You're not running for president. What you keep reminding the public by your refusal to recognize that you're not running is you keep reminding the public of just how bad 1994's crime bill was. It has caused, again, a resurrection of what was in the bill, why it was so damaging. It has allowed for the kind of analysis and critique and clarity that has been resurrected because of his words. Imagine if from the podium he said, okay, you know what? I'm going to step aside and give you the mic. I want us to hear what you have to say and let those young Black Lives Matter activists speak and then went to the podium and said, it is hard for me to admit the devastation that, th that this bill caused. It is hard for me to say that, but I see you, I hear you. I am here because my wife is looking to do some of the things that I have not been able to do. And for even, even if you can't say, I'm sorry, but for the devastation that your communities have been caused, I am profoundly sorry, which is at least a way to acknowledge the damage of the, the bill. But to hear you talk about this all-time crime low, which is simply not the reality in those communities of color, is problematic. And then we have an additional dilemma, which is the hardest one to talk about. And for me, it's the emotionality piece of policy, because... I'm a big believer in the, the fusion of institutional change along with individual action. And the work that I do around emotional justice requires that they work in partnership. The challenge and the trouble with Republican dog whistle politics is it makes the individual liable for everything if they're poor, black, brown, immigrant, and not a rich white man. If you're a rich white man, then institutions jump up to protect whatever it is that you do, however problematic and devastating it may be for other people. But those kind, that kind of institutional um, structural support disappears for communities of color, so it matters. Um, it also matters. It also matters for us to engage in communal and individual levels in partnership with that institutional change. And part of the reality that we are challenged to face as a community is that if the institutional, institutional structures happen tomorrow, that would create massive change. It would still require individual action to make those structures stand up and continue to work. And so it is thinking about a, um, a practical politics that takes into account the personal power of individuals whilst never allowing that to replace the necessary policy work and policy practice and policy passage that allows individuals to step up into structures that actually function. Um, and I also, you know, I come back to the last point about the way in which sexism functions and a woman being held responsible for the stupidity, ego, rhetoric, 
and um, obsession with defending indefensible records that Bill Clinton has. And, you know, when people said, well, it was an apology, there was nothing apologetic about what he said, what he did. What he actually did was to go on and remind us just how good the bill was for some apparent people that he claims were black people's lives. The thing that riled me the most about his... And how great cops were. Exactly. The thing that riled me the most about his non-apologies when he said, we can't afford to be fighting with our friends. We have work to do. Bill Clinton, what friends do you have when it comes to communities of color? So divisive. You know, very quickly about the sexism, um, Esther, you know, yes, I agree. You know, I I agree very much. He needs to step back, step out, go to the side, you know, be the partner behind the scenes in a way and be supportive, you know, and not let his legacy uh, be a detriment to Hillary's campaign. But I I do think this is a decision that Hillary and her, uh, you know, her campaign people need to need to really need to make, you know, I think in a way, um, you know, putting him out there front and center is, is, is a sort of Hillary choice, you know, and, uh, you know, I hope she changes that choice. I hope that, you know, I hope she realizes after this that, you know, this is, this causes problems that, you know, it's digging a kind of a hole for herself. But um, I do feel we have to acknowledge that she's the one and her campaign is the one making that decision to allow him to kind of go out there and say what he says. And, you know, these guys, they always stick the script. You know, they're very, they're very serious seasoned politicians in a way. He's not going to go out there and, you know, let loose without having been given some sort of leeway to do that, you know. We remember how savvy Bill Clinton was. But I think we also have to remember he's slipping. You know, and I think, which goes back to an earlier point you made, Esther, which is because he's such a narcissist and a megalomaniac, he actually doesn't know how to be a beta. And so in his mm-hmm. effort to, quote-unquote, help his wife, which I really do not think he knows how to do, he never has known how to do that. She's always been the support staff, and he's always been the star. So how does he learn how to step back and and sort of step out of the limelight he doesn't really know how to do it and so in this in this 90s revisionist history we can look at how he was able to you know unseat an incumbent president and that's that's huge it's a huge success as a crowded field and he did it and he was savvy and he was sharp and he sold a lot of bad bills of goods to black folks and Democrats for for eight years. And so there's a level of sophistication that was there that we've seen him sort of be unraveled ever since 2008, where he just keeps going down the rabbit hole. And especially because in many ways, I know this this analogy might sound weird, but the way he speaks to black folks these days is this, it reminds me of the same way the ownership of the Cleveland Cavaliers spoke to LeBron James when he decided to move to Miami. That essentially audacity of how dare you betray me after all I've given you. And that's the way he consistently talks to black people. And black people aren't hearing it. We are, you know, for the most part, um, I think many people will still hold their noses and vote for Hillary Clinton for a host of reasons, because especially of uh, what the the opposite uh, parties are presenting to us. <laughs> but but I think, you know, the the finger wagging and the literal and 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 figurative finger wagging at black people is really astonishing in the 21st century. But he's not in the 21st century. He's still 1992 Bill Clinton playing the sex. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, when I think back to um, the reality of these kind of multiple strategies that 
um, Black Lives Matter, the movement is engaging, the refusal to endorse any individual candidate, the, um, you know, even what they did with Chicago, the refusal to endorse a candidate, but the coalition building to unseat one that had failed to seek justice on the behalf of, of um, murdered, killed black children by police officers. And so I think about a 21st century activist strategy that is all about what is the best for us, not even who is the best, but what is the best for us and how do we strategize to get it? Now, of course, um, we're talking about a, a young movement in a lot of ways when it comes to Black Lives Matter, the organizers in terms of the movement. And there is a whole generation of people who walked with Clinton and who saw um, Clinton's, you know, let, let us never forget the beloved Toni Morrison calling him the first black president. And there is a generation of people who walk with the Clintons in terms of a particular type of, I would argue, respectability politics that they represent, a piece of the power. Not even a crumb, though, really and truly, when you look at the bills and the impact they had on people's families. Because even those who consider themselves middle class or who walked with Clinton may have had people in their families who were decimated by that 1994 crime bill whose impact exists to this very day. There's a historical um, element to it, and then there is a, a, a futuristic element to it as well. And so the last point is that Hillary Clinton cannot get elected without um, the black vote. President Obama's two terms revealed the massive numbers and the ways in which black women in particular organized and went to the polls, record numbers of first-time voters, record numbers in the African-American community, and the analysis, um, I'm glad we have a political scientist here, the analysis revealed that that was what got him over the hurdle. So Hillary Clinton has a particular dilemma. As you said, Bhakti, I really take your point that Hillary Clinton and her camp are choosing to put Bill front and center. So I, I, I concede to your point and that that choice matters in the putting him out there and letting, letting him speak. You're also saying that you support some of what he's doing. What do you do when the movement whose vote you're, you're seeking to acquire is telling you that this person isn't just de detrimental and devastating to our, our policy and future, He's devastating and decimating to your politics. Unless you think you can play rhetoric footsie with Black Lives Matter and win, as in win votes. And, you know, they're really about to get a very serious um, um, shock. They really are. Bill Clinton, super predatory politician. I have to say, the rhetoric just makes me want to scream.
as I turned on the TV this evening, I was disgusted by all the injustice. All the injustice. That was our main event conversation. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women of colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Dr. Christina Greer and Dr. Bhakti Shringapore. The Spin is brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in three FMs across studios in Ghana. Our contributors join me via NPR's Washington, D.C. studios. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, South Carolina, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa on 3FM in Accra, Ghana, and on WFM 91.7 Lagos, Nigeria. And we are online via podcast. Time for the first of our hot topics, Jesus talk, preaching while policing. The Midwest is young and restless, restless. Might snatch your necklace and next this might jack your Lexus. Somebody tell these who Kanye West is. I walk through the valley of the shower, death is. Top floor, if you alone, I leave you breathless. Try to catch it. It's kind of hard getting choked by the Texas. Yeah, yeah, I check the method. An Indiana state trooper has been fired after preaching the word as he stopped drivers and issued tickets. In one complaint, a woman was asked, have you accepted Jesus as your Christ and savior? The authorities said his termination was based on a complaint in January that said he had questioned a driver's religious affiliations after pulling over the vehicle. In 2014, a similar episode occurred and authorities told the state trooper not to talk to drivers about religion. He continued to do just that. The Indiana state trooper is Brian L. Hamilton, a 14-year veteran now fired for his religion by the roadside. I wonder what the story might have been had Mr. Hamilton been preaching Islam and asking drivers about Allah and the Prophet Muhammad. Let's talk preaching while policing and the wider issue of religious freedom. Bhakti Shringapur. Well, first of all, he's, he's fired, which is uh, in itself quite a, you know, it's quite an achievement for a country that refuses to indict its police that refuses to take any action against the consistent violence of the police against, you know, uh, black marginalized communities, against their Islamophobia. So, uh, you know, what, what, what is it about this guy that triggered uh, such a response? That's very interesting to me. Or are we really more concerned with, uh, you know, the people that complain that somehow um, the people that complain uh, mattered to, this, uh, to these police? That said... Uh, this is this is just a horrible uh, this is a horrible story. I mean, this is a, clearly a veteran dealing with emotional um, problems, emotional issues, and uh, enforcing his religious views on somebody. I think if this were, uh, first of all, I, I, Esther, I, I I can't imagine the moment when somebody uh, when there is an Islamic preaching going on, and that is this is a Muslim cop doing that to somebody. I can't, you know, I have a hard time even imagining this universe. Uh, but that said, there are all levels of hypocrisy in this that uh, that bug me. I hear that. Christina Greer. I agree with you completely. The very first thing I thought was, imagine if this police officer said, you know, pulled over someone and said, have you accepted Allah as your savior? <laughs> and yeah, I mean, this this would be a situation where not only um, would he have been fired, he probably would have been arrested um, and placed in some sort of, you know, institution um because he would be seen as a terrorist. I mean, this is unfortunately where we've uh, gotten as a country. And 
I think it's, you know it's important to point out we're at this point and we still have a a democratic president who also happens to be African American. So I think you know there's this conversation um that I've been trying to have with my students especially about really making sure we pay attention to the local. It's not just about national mm-hmm. laws, but you know luckily someone thought that he should you know, be reprimanded for this. But I think Bhakti is completely correct in the sense that, okay, so he's reprimanded for asking someone if they've accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. However, if his colleague decided to shoot an innocent black man or woman in broad daylight or child, they could probably still have not only their job, but their pension. So, and many of these people, you know, work for individuals who were voted into office. Um, we're, you know, sort of voting or not voting for DAs who refuse to prosecute these individuals. So I think it's it's really incumbent upon us to start paying attention to all the local level mechanisms that make some of these behaviors possible, um, or in, in the good ways when when it curtails some of these behaviors. But I, I, I really just I was shocked when I heard it because all I could do was think about all the other religions in this country that are still being, in many ways, persecuted. Yep. Politics and policing um, are local. I was shocked that he was fired. Um, And then I realized, well, that suggests that there is a consistency to policing in the United States of America because clearly you can shoot, kill, beat, maim, decimate, devastate the lives of black men and women and be in some ways rewarded for that behavior by the protection of your job, the uh, ongoing promise of your pension, the probability of promotion. But invoke um, Jesus and all bets are off and you're in the unemployment line. And the reason why I thought about, can you imagine if this was um, Islam? I mean, I agree with you, Bhakti. The idea is is preposterous, but also that it would be a completely different story. It would be about the way in which, you know, terrorism has reached our shores and even the police, the you know, the bluest of the blue are unprotected from the religion that is Islam. There is a way in which the religion would become the, uh, would become criminalized, um, as opposed to recognizing this for what it what it is, I don't know about Mr. Hamilton's um, emotional state or lack thereof. I'm just really stunned, frankly, by America's hypocrisy when it comes to whose life matters. We all know that Jesus' life matters. I just didn't know that it mattered this much. I'm just saying. I had no idea. <laughs> White views matter, you know. But you know the other funny part about this article, uh, which is in the New York Times uh, that we read, uh, was the fact that now that he's fired, there's this whole opposition um, against it. And and I love this this idea that that opposition includes 1,200 people. That includes people of the Jewish faith and Muslims. I mean, I, I almost find it hard to believe, but there you wow, go. Wow! Really? Wow! Well, I guess Jesus take the wheel. She was driving last Friday on her way to Cincinnati on a snow-white Christmas Eve Going home to see her mama and her daddy with the baby in the back seat Fifty miles to go and she was running low on faith and gasoline It'd been a long, hard year 
She had a lot on her mind and she didn't pay attention She was going away too fast And before she knew it she was spinning on a thin black sheet of glass She saw both her lives flash before her eyes She didn't even have time to cry She was so scared She threw her hands up in the air Jesus, take the For hot topic two, Malawi magic: how one chief is transforming thousands of girl children's lives. Teresa Kachindamoto is a chief of the 900,000 people of the Dedza district in Malawi. Malawi is a landlocked country in southeastern Africa. When Chief Teresa reluctantly took that position nearly 13 years ago, she found hundreds of girls as young as 12 were child brides. There were sexual initiation camps and rites for girls who were expected to marry as children. Those camps would include something called cleansing, where girls were taught to, quote, please men, unquote, some as young as seven. She would see 12-year-old girls with babies strapped to their backs and their teenaged husbands. Initially, Chief Teresa worked with the community to challenge the mindset and change the, the tradition. When the child marriages continued, the chief chose another route, the law. No more child marriage. Chief Teresa got her 50 subchiefs to sign an agreement to abolish early marriage under customary law and annul any existing unions in her area of authority. When she learned that child marriages were still taking place in some areas, she fired four male chiefs responsible for these areas. They returned months later to tell her that all marriages had been undone. After sending people to verify this, she hired the chiefs back. She then drew community members, the clergy, local committees and charities together to pass a bylaw that banned early marriage under the civil law. Chief Kachindamoto went a step further. The girls would be sent back to school to continue their education. She worked to teach their mothers. Educated girls could be richer for them than child brides. A 2012 United Nations survey found that more than half of Malawi's girls were married before the age of 18. It ranked Malawi eighth out of 20 countries thought to have the highest child marriage rates in the world. Last year, Malawi's parliament passed a law forbidding marriage before the age of 18. Chief Kachindamoto is now asking parliament to increase the minimum age of marriage from 18 to 21 in an effort to break a cycle of rural poverty. Swagger salute, Chief Teresa. Christina Greer. I keep asking myself, what year are we in? Um, you know, in the 21st century where we can see just young girls essentially being in some ways sold into slavery. I mean, whether you call it a marriage or or whatever you want to call it, if you're 10 or you're 12, um, in, in many ways it's slavery. And I just think that, you know, as heartbreaking as this story initially is, it just it makes me so inspired to know that there are so many women um, around the world, but especially on the continent, who are just changing life for just thousands and thousands of people um, with their courageous efforts. And so, you know, in many ways, it's inspiring to me to really, you know, step up, you know, to 
because we have more resources, or I have more resources than most, um, and really think about what I can do to really make an imprint the way this this chief has. And I have really, you know, Esther, I miss you terribly now that you're a continent away, but I do think that, you know, these stories are important, especially because they they don't make it to the United States in the ways that they could and should. Um, I actually had not heard about this story until you brought it to my attention, um, and I read, you know, about eight newspapers every morning before six o'clock. So I really do think that these these types of efforts are oftentimes not highlighted because it's also part of a narrative um, that many people just choose to ignore. Closing word to you, Bhakti Shringapur. That's very true, Esther. I also wanted to thank you for bringing this story to my attention. I mean, I, as you know, I, you know, I'm from India, and this is a big issue there. Uh, you know, it's also a big issue in countries like Yemen, and you know, there's lots of places in the world that are really dealing with this uh, this exact problem, which is early child marriage, this kind of sexual slavery uh, to elders, you know, systematized uh, child abuse and sexual assault uh, within communities. So uh, it's inspiring and wonderful to hear, uh, you know, to read about this and also to see the amount of people that she has impacted, you know, 850 child marriages that she has uh, broken up. This is, uh, this is wonderful. One of the things, of course, I love that uh, kudos to a community that, uh, that calls Teresa Kachindamoto uh, while she's working as a secretary, calls this woman and says, you know what, you have the chief of... Uh, you have the blood of chiefs running through your veins. Come, lead us. You know, so you know it's great that she got this opportunity, and then she has made uh, the absolute most of it. The other thing I would say is. Uh, this, is, this is precisely the kind of grassroots localized intervention that one must always uh, promote in a way. And, um, and you know, I, I do worry when some of these figures become international uh, figures sometimes, when they get prizes and they kind of get taken out of their uh, localized context and are paraded uh, elsewhere. So I, I, I hope in a way that she remains uh, remains committed to this community and that uh, that this exposure, while we need it for inspiration, for thinking through activism in general, uh, I, I, you know, I don't want it to have, in a way, I worry about its detrimental effects too. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you just have to think about someone like Malala or, you know, uh, you know, other activists that get this kind of recognition and then everything sort of changes. Uh, and just to kind of uh, bring back the idea, you know, localized grassroots intervention versus Madonna adopting a a baby from Malawi. I mean, just look, look what, what, what a difference, you know, um, each makes in a way. I'm really um, reminded of what leadership looks like. And when I read the um, story, I loved so many specific things about it. So yes, I take Christina's point, um, uh, a community that recognized that uh, Chief Teresa had the blood of chief in her veins and said, come lead us. It is your time. It is your turn. Um, that she came. I loved that her approach in the beginning was to work with wherever people were. Let me try and deal with your mindset, with your tradition, with your culture, and let's see what we can do there. And when that didn't work, looking for another route in order to have maximum impact on these, uh, on the children. Um, the bringing together of community and clergy and educators uh, in order to pass the bylaw. The following through on its implementation by firing those who refused to uphold the law and protect those children. By when they then did right 
and came back by then rehiring them and rewarding them for doing right and then encouraging them to continue to do that, um, for continuing to work with mothers who would try and find a way around the law to still marry off their, um, their girls by teaching them that for, for those mothers, marriage was a contract. It was a financial contract. And for them, getting the girls out of the house was a poverty question. It was a straightforward poverty question. And so what I love about partly what she did, she didn't make their choice wrong. I love when she said that to them, educated, educated girls can be richer for your community than child brides. And she met the mothers where their mindset was while offering those girl children a chance to go back to school and be educated and a chance out of poverty, which we know education is a way out of poverty. We see it again and again and again and again. So I'm inspired by um, watching what she did. I'm also reminded, you know, when women lead, the conversation, the community, and the possibilities change. And I love that she did what she did in partnership, which is also symptomatic of how women lead. And that tradition is not this um, static thing. It can evolve, it can change. Tradition can really become something else. your hour. Thank you to Christina Greer and Bhakti Shringapur. Thanks, ladies. Thanks, Esther. Thanks, Esther. It was a pleasure. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor Mark Torres, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. Follow me on Twitter at Esther Armour. Put The Spin on your regular podcast rotation. The Spin. Your hour of talk, where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.